From FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. On today's program, the plight of the Amazon in the indigenous communities that call it home. To me, forests are not only an essential part for our fight for climate change, but also for our lives itself. That's Ines Angulo. She's the coordinator for the Forest Investment Program at the Climate Investment Funds, which, again, as a point of disclosure, is a partner on this podcast. An estimated 1.3 billion people, or 20% of the world's population, depend on forests and forest products for their livelihoods. But they have a very important role in climate change because there's an estimate that agriculture, forestry, and other types of land uses account for approximately 23% of the human greenhouse gas emissions. But also they are a very important part of the solution because natural land processes absorb a third of the carbon dioxide that is produced annually from fossil fuels and industries. So the science is clear on why protecting forests is important. What's less apparent is just how to do it, especially when powerful economic forces are at play. We are dealing with very complex problems. So the solutions that we require to solve them are also very complex, meaning that we are not tackling environmental problems per se, but we need to work with people. And working with people, we know that changing behaviors is not an easy task. It's a task that involves looking for common ground. So if we can work together, government, private sector, local communities, NGOs, to make sure that we are increasing and using not only, let's say, traditional knowledge, but also taking advantage of new technologies and of new ways of improving productivity, then we can make sure that we can have a long-term change and at the same time we are able to comply with the demand that is coming in the future. Later on in the show, we're going to visit the state of Para in Brazil to see how a holistic approach towards protecting the rainforest is starting to pay dividends. But first, we wanted to get a better sense of the human impact of deforestation. And for that, let's turn to climate activist Nina Walinga. Nina's from the Quechua community of Sariaku in the Ecuadorian Amazon. I reached her recently while she was quarantining at her home in Sweden, and we connected over Skype. She began that conversation by recounting the horrors that she witnessed in Sariaku as a young person. I was about seven or eight years old, you know, and we were living in a community, living in family, uh, fishing from the river, growing our own fields and uh, hunting. And suddenly this entire way of life changed because um, the Ecuadorian government sent down militaries to our territory in order to harass our people and our leaders to agree to oil exploitation in our territories. Um, And the way that the community got to know about it was because they heard helicopters landing on the beaches of our uh, river. Um, And when my community decided to say no, because we knew about the negative impacts oil exploitation uh, has on the land and on people, uh, because we had seen this in the northern Ecuador and Amazon, um, the Ecuadorian government responded in a violent way, sending out 
um, you know, like Ecuadorian special forces. A lot of people were threatened, tortured, harassed, uh, you know, and finally, you know, after a 10 year long process, this actually went to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. And you were a part of that lawsuit, right? Just as a as a teenager, is that correct? I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't part of that lawsuit. Um, it was a collective process, but I was one of the youth that was in the hearing. And you know, luckily, we won that case. So, you know, as an eight-year-old, when you realize that your entire future might be taken away from you, your entire community might be destroyed like I started at that time advocating for my community and just in general like the Amazon and indigenous rights and indigenous territories and later you know as I came to Sweden to study and you know just realizing what was happening in the world I saw that this was not, you know, an isolated thing that had happened only to my community. This was happening across the Amazon. This was happening across the world. Um, there's many layers of violence that indigenous people or, you know, local communities experience. Uh, the first one is when these companies come to your territory. The second one is when you stand up against them and then the government starts harassing you and persecuting you. And then now, you know, almost 20 years later, my community has been impacted by climate change. Um, there has been massive floods in the Bobonasa River Basin affecting many communities, including mine, where basically almost every family has lost all their crops. Uh, many families have lost their homes. The schools are completely gone. The bridge, you know, just really devastating to see. And in less than three weeks, we had three massive floods. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen some of the images and video from those floods, and it, it does just look, you know, incredibly devastating. And I want to I want to talk about that, that sort of idea of a feedback loop, because, you know, on one hand, um, forests like the Amazon, like their existence buffers against climate change, right? Because trees are taking in carbon dioxide sort of acting as, you know, the lungs of the planet is, is how it gets described a lot of times. So, you know, obviously keeping them intact helps buffer against um, climate change. Deforestation then, you know, contributes to the warming of the planet. But then these same areas are, are affected by by the warming that we all know is happening, right? And there are some predictions, I mean, about the drought and flood cycles, like you were mentioning, the, the extreme floods that have happened in your community recently. I mean, I think there are other uh, scientists who are very concerned in, in the long term about the drying out of the Amazon, at least in certain parts, right? That there could be this feedback loop where warmer temperatures essentially change the type of forest that exists and, and that it would be one that offers a lot less less cover and protection and diversity and, and all sorts of things. And, and I guess I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I mean, it does seem, like you said, sort of layers of violence to have all these things happening at once. I guess like what has happened here is extremely unfair. 
because Indigenous people are the ones that have been fighting climate change, that has been uh, making sure that fossil fuels that are causing climate change are kept in the ground, um, you know, that are fighting these industries that are destroying our earth and creating climate change. And then it's the same people in the same communities that are being impacted by climate change. So being here in Sweden and watching my family, my cousins, the people that I love losing everything, um, you know, their crops, their houses. My uncle's house is completely gone. He has nothing. That's just, you know, on a personal level, very painful and makes you feel powerless in a way. Yeah, what we're doing right now is we're trying to rebuild our communities, but we also are very aware that we probably need to relocate the community in the long run because this will continue happening. And, you know, um, that is also... It's, you can't just relocate a community over a day. We have been living there for hundreds of years. Our way of life is adapted to, um, you know, the, the, the environment, which is, you know, we live by the riverbank and we grow our food by the riverbank. And now we need to find different ways of living, find other places um, where we won't be hit by another massive flood. I'm really sorry for what you and you know your family have been been going through. I, I want to come back to that your connection and your community's connection to these global issues. That I really do think that that is profound, and it's it's this kind of like troubling and difficult part of of thinking about the climate crisis, right? Is it is so local and so global simultaneously. Um, but there, there's this group, Project Drawdown, which I'm, I'm guessing you're familiar with, that has tried to kind of like quantify some solutions to the climate crisis. Um, you know, and they, they say that the Earth has lost uh, – that about 12 percent of the Earth's land surface used to be covered by, by tropical forests. It's now um, about 5 percent, so an incredible amount of uh, that natural resource has been lost. But what this group says and, you know, and others is that efforts to protect – um, as your community has done and bring back, uh, those forests could really have a, a, an impact on the, on the global carbon budget. Not that it means that countries can just keep burning fossil fuels and, and also planting trees and it'll be fine, but that these forests really matter in, in the amount of carbon they take in. I think drawdown is saying that, you know, between now and 2050, the, the tropical forest could take in, something like a couple years worth of the fossil fuel pollution that we put into the atmosphere. So a significant amount. And I, I guess I'm wondering how those figures and stats, how those land with you and, and the role that you see indigenous communities like Seriaku playing in, um, you know, protecting the force that is there and, and trying to, to increase the cover of, of these tropical lands. Yeah. There are a lot of, um, you know, evidence that in the best protected areas, you know, when it comes to forest is actually indigenous land. Um, and 
I think, you know, that says a lot um, because Indigenous people live off the land. Um, you know, uh, Indigenous people are also the best protectors of forests. But that is only, you know, if Indigenous people's territories are respected. Because once, for example, once you start building roads on Indigenous territories, once you start exploiting for oil, you know, that contaminates the water, it destroys the cycles of nature and, and also the animals, which means that even Indigenous people can become part of this system that is 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 destroying the forests but what is important is to respect indigenous rights respect indigenous territory and respect indigenous autonomy because in that way indigenous people can continue living off the land indigenous people can continue protecting forests and that is what indigenous people have been doing for hundreds of years and indigenous people have been fighting climate change um much before the Paris Agreement. And, you know, that has to matter when we talk about these things. Like, we need to keep that in mind. You know, in a lot of um, Western languages and in English as well, when you speak about nature, it's very disconnected from as humans. When we're talking about nature, we are talking about what's outside of us, you know? It's a way of understanding um for example in my language there is no such word because if you are talking about nature you are including yourself and you are including humans in that concept of nature because that's the way indigenous people view the world we are part of the earth well nina walinga i I really appreciate you taking time to talk talk through all of uh, this with us and and i hope you know you and your family stay safe through uh, what's been happening. But thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's Nina Walinga, a climate activist from the community of Seriaku in Ecuador. If you want to explore all of the dimensions of the climate crisis, you absolutely should be listening to a podcast called Climate One. For 12 years, Climate One host Greg Dalton has been having revealing and solutions-oriented conversations with hundreds of experts, in food, energy, technology, politics, and more. With featured guests like Jane Goodall, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, and EPA Chief Andrew Wheeler, Climate One has become one of the most credible resources for climate information, respected by industry executives and activists alike. Download and subscribe to the Climate One podcast today. More than 60% of the Amazon rainforest is in Brazil. And that country made headlines last year as large swaths of land, were devastated by fires. Right now, the Amazon rainforest is being consumed by fire. In fact, there's an 80% increase in fires just over the last year alone. And this comes, of course, after the hottest July our planet has ever seen. I want you to take- Further compounding the problem has been a push by the current administration to open the rainforest to agriculture, cattle ranches, mining, and large infrastructure projects. But what if the forest could become more profitable than log timber and meat? Local communities, NGOs, and scientists, they're combining conservation and technology in search of ways to make sure that trees are more valuable if they're kept alive. Paula Mora reports. The Almeida family has been traveling together on their white and blue wooden boat for more than a week. They're crossing long expanses of brown water surrounded by river dolphins and birdsong, 
the sound of the Amazon forest in Brazil. I meet them in Pará State, more than 2,000 miles from São Paulo. This state is huge, almost twice the size of Texas, and is the home of 9% of the tropical forests in the world. To get there, I took a five-hour flight, an overnight passenger boat, and traveled for four hours in a motorboat along the Trombetas River. This area is very remote. Only around 350,000 people live here. The Almeida family is one of them, and despite the pleasant scene, they are not on vacation. The boat has little space inside. It's filled with 120-pound bags of Brazil nuts. These little beige and brown nuts are a $1 billion industry for Brazil. The U.S. is the main importer. Maria de Jesus Seixas says they bought Brazil nuts from four different communities at the Ipecuru River, including their community. São Joaquim. Inside a 100,000 square miles of continuous reserve, the size of Colorado in the northwest of Pará State, the most deforested state in Brazil since last year. Maria, her husband, and three children on board live in a Quilombola community formed by descendants of slaves who hid and resisted in the forest to escape their servitude 200 years ago. Harvesting these Brazil nuts hasn't been easy. Collectors spend at least a week foraging their forests, risking their lives avoiding venomous snakes and dodging 10-pound nut balls all while wielding razor-sharp machetes. From there, the nuts will travel on a cargo to Sao Paulo. But it's worth it because nowadays Brazil nuts fetch more than five times than they did 20 years ago. Historically, Quilombola nut harvesters have received very little for their hard work, while middlemen controlled transportation, sales and prices. But that's changed because now they're in a cooperative that helps them to sell directly to consumers. It was created with the help of Imaflora, a Brazilian NGO funded primarily by Petrobras, Brazil's national oil company, as well as the Amazon Fund. That's an international donation program dedicated to preserving the Brazilian Amazon. Leading our trip down the river is Lorenaldo de Souza Almeida, or Bito. Over the years, he's worn many hats, nut collector, nut buyer, and today, he's our boat captain. He's also Imaflora's local partner. The NGO's mission is to support conservation through sustainable use of the forest. Bito can't hide his excitement for being part of the cooperative's operations. He remembers when he started collecting nuts in a distant area over 20 years ago. I he says his group rode for two days under the heat with rain. He told his brother he'd never go back to that place and that they were going to die there. At that time, after weeks of work, each collector would earn around $70 to $130 for the whole season. Nowadays, if they sell to the cooperative, they earn roughly $500. If they were going through middlemen, it would be 40% less. Imaflora certifies their fair trade products and the products of dozens of communities all over the Amazon. 
It also encourages communities to harvest other sustainable crops in the Amazon beyond Brazil nuts. With input from Ima Flora, Bito has begun using GPS to map the different trees in their territory and lists many of them. He says he wasn't aware of all those differences among the trees before, or how much potential profit he could make from saving the forest rather than tearing it down. He even worked in a timber company for some months. Bito regrets the experience not only because of the trees he fell, but also because of the harsh conditions, long hours and low pay. But world markets have shifted in the last 20 years, and fair trade products now account for $9 billion in global sales. And Brazilians like Bito are going all in to take advantage of this growing opportunity. He's even decided to invest part of his family's modest income to attend university, so he can learn to navigate all sectors of the sustainable market. He dreams of installing a Brazil nut processing plant in his community. While Bito's story provides hope that these new sustainable markets will protect the rainforest, there's still not enough economic incentive to stop widespread deforestation. For example, Brazil nuts are only a seasonal product and don't provide enough revenue to sustain a full income. So while the shift in global markets toward fair trade goods has been helpful, scientists like Carlos Nobre also want to see a change in policy. The current policy since the 1970s is a resource-intensive policy of development, mining, hydropower, and, and primarily agribusiness, cattle ranches, croplands. Nobody is one of Brazil's top climate scientists and a researcher with the Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Sao Paulo. He believes environmentalists who want to protect the forest and traditional industries like cattle ranching don't have to be in perpetual conflict. He sees another option. Amazonia 4.0. This is the name Nobre has come up with to describe a policy which he says will bring a modern-day industrial revolution to the forest. Things like intelligent machines communicating via satellite, artificial intelligence and drones. But rather than destroy the forest, he sees all this use of high-tech as a means to harvest its bounty. He believes Amazonia 4.0's economic model will prove that the rainforests is more profitable preserved rather than cut down. One could think of an indigenous community producing a product and really generating a very uh, robust and sustainable economy. For instance, Cattle ranching is one of Brazil's most profitable industries, but more than 20% of the deforested land grabbed for ranching in the Amazon is abandoned a decade later. In contrast, harvesting and selling acai berries is four times as profitable and does little harm to the forests. Nobre thinks people can ultimately be persuaded to abandon the status quo if he can show them protecting the forest is good for their bottom line. This is a cultural value. It's nothing related to rational de decision-making in economics. He's looking for funding to implement a pilot of his project and hopes to get something off the ground by 2021. Some in the Quilombola community are already protecting the Amazon by creating new products from plants never before considered valuable, like copaiba oil. 
For centuries, this oil derived from the Amazon's copaiba tree was used by locals as a salve to help heal wounds. But now, extracting the oil has become a cottage industry. The home of 48-year-old Antonio Marco Salgado, known as Marquinho, is the informal center of the Quilombola community of Curuçamirim. He takes me to a room where he keeps a scale and a table full of notebooks with clean white containers hanging from the wall. He buys and stocks copaiba oil from more than 20 collectors in the area. He shows the filtering process to guarantee no residue will be in the oil, which he sells to cosmetic companies. Before Imaflora's involvement, the price per pound was barely enough to turn a profit for collectors. But the NGO stepped in here and helped locals map the trees to ensure they weren't being overused. It also demonstrated how to make a purer product using clean containers and helped to expand the market to multiple buyers and streamline production and payment. The result? In five years since the program began, the community has enjoyed a fourfold increase in the price per pound for the oil. He says he feels good living in the forest. It's a paradise. And he wants the next generations to continue loving and preserving the forest and the river. Marquinhos' daughter, Deusilene Constantino Salgado, is 28 and is the director of their cultural association. She's also thinking about the future of her community. She says usually men are the only ones working with Copaiba and that she wants to find a way women could, for example, produce a base for soap and shampoos. She's looking for a partnership to make that happen. Perhaps Brazilian scientists could help with that. Travel north from the Quilombola communities for about 100 miles and you'll hit the city of Santarém. There you'll find the Federal University of West Pará, where chemistry professor Lauro Barata teaches students how to perform experiments with locally sourced copaiba oil. It's not possible to save Amazon without science and technology. Barata wants to transform this area in the Amazon into an aromatic powerhouse. In addition to harvesting Amazon's trees, Barata is also supporting agroforestry. These mean planting crops that can survive in a forest system or areas previously deforested. One of these crops is pripirioca. It's a green grass-like plant that grows up to your knees. Down the road from Barata's classroom, the university owns a working farm for students of agriculture science. There I meet three of Barata's students ripping out pripirioca from the ground. Later, they wash and separate the roots to extract essence oil. He says two pounds of this oil can be worth $500 or more. This has been eye-opening for doctorate student Aline Kasper. She's finishing her thesis on the rejected parts of Pripirioca roots. In front of her is a boiling pot full of the brown dried roots. The oil has already been extracted and she will see what was left there.
eu não imaginava que nos resíduos a gente pudesse ter tantas substâncias importantes, né? Que que fiquem naquele. É, she says she didn't imagine leftovers considered garbage would still contain so many important substances. Among them, antioxidants that could result in anti-aging creams or antiseptic products. The Amazon is considered a world treasure, counting for a quarter of the planet's biodiversity. But Barata says it's also an economic opportunity that's been right under their noses. You have 14,000 species of plants. And between these 14,000, there are 6,000 that are trees. With so many different types of trees and plants, he's confident more and more sustainable crops will be discovered, which he views as critical to saving the rainforest. And he already has a proven track record. In the 90s, Barata developed a method to extract rosewood oil for Chanel that didn't involve cutting trees down. Its success has helped protect the remaining trees after huge deforestation. Barata sees an opportunity not only to save the Amazon, but also to encourage locals to be entrepreneurs. I want to involve these people from here. They are here, they were born here, and some have no idea how precious are these materials. Barata and others hope the next big consumer product will not only make the world smell great, but also keep the rainforest sustainable for years to come. Reporting from Brazil's Pará State in the Amazon, I'm Paula Moura. I assume you're listening to this podcast because you care about the climate crisis. You probably believe that it's a crisis, a planetary emergency, which is what the scientists keep telling us. But not everyone sees it that way, of course. Next week on Heat of the Moment, we'll talk about how governments, journalists, and activists, how we all are trying to change the narrative when we talk about climate change. The goal? Make the conversation more inclusive, less hostile, and frankly, less boring. Just talking about these things that people are doing and, and the amazing actions cities are taking to build resilience, to build a more healthy environment, I find that when I look for these stories, they're often not headline stories. They're often buried stories. And when I share them with people, nobody knows. They say, wow, I've never heard of this before. <laughs> But these are the stories that we need because for hope, we have to go out and we have to find those hopeful stories. That's next week on the podcast. That's it for this episode of Heat of the Moment, which is a co-production of FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. The opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent the stance of foreign policy, the Climate Investment Funds, or their partners. Our podcast is produced by myself and Emily Johnson, with help from Scott Andrews and Dan Haverty. Special thanks to KUER and KCPW in Salt Lake City and WABE in Atlanta for their assistance. The director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. I'm John Sutter. Thank you for listening.